Section 14 of Vagabond Adventures. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vagabond Adventures by Ralph Keeler. Book Two. Three Years as a Negro Minstrel. Chapter Four. The Trials and Triumphs of the Booker Troop. The two gentlemen with whom I left Pittsburgh accompanied me to Toledo, where Mr. Booker set to work to get up another company. It was not long till we heard of Lynch at Cincinnati in search of an engagement, and he was accordingly sent for. Mr. Edwin Deves, also a member of the defunct Serenaders, and now, by the way, a gray-haired wood-engraver and scenic artist at San Francisco, was brought from some other place, and the Booker Troop set out on its travels. This company prided itself on its sobriety and gentlemanly conduct. It was the business of the four other members to keep poor Lynch straight, and if, in the endeavor, some of them occasionally fell themselves, it was put down to the reckless good-fellowship of the merry veteran, and hushed up as expeditiously as possible. There were so few of us that we could afford to go to smaller towns than the other troop had ever visited. It was deemed a good advertisement, as well as in some metaphysical way conducive to the morale of the company, to dress as nearly alike as we could when off the stage. This had the effect, as will be readily understood, of pointing me out more prominently than ever as the juvenile prodigy whose portrait and assumed name were plastered about over the walls of the towns and cities through which we took our triumphal march. The first part of our performances we gave with white faces, and I had so improved my opportunities that I was now able to appear as the Scotch girl in plaid petticoats who executes the inevitable highland fling in such exhibitions. By practicing in my room through many tedious days, I learned to knock and spin and toss about the tambourine on the end of my forefinger, and, having rehearsed a budget of stale jokes, I was promoted to one of the end men in the first part of the negro performances. Lynch, who could do anything from a solo on the penny trumpet to an obligato on the double bass, was at the same time advanced to play the second violin, as this made more music and helped fill up the stage. In addition to my jig, I now appeared in all sorts of pas de deux, took the principal lady part in negro ballets, and danced Lucy Long. I am told that I looked the wench admirably. Indeed, I have always considered it a substantiation of this fact, rather than an evidence of his maudlin condition, that a year or so subsequently a planter in one of the southern states insisted on purchasing me from the door-tender at one of our exhibitions. The price he offered, and the earnestness and apparent good faith in which he offered it, were so flattering that I have always regretted the necessity in which the door-tender at last considered himself of kicking that planter downstairs. The Booker Troop wandered all over the western country, traveling at all hours of night and day, and in all manner of conveyances, from the best to the worst. The life was so exciting, and I was so young, that I was probably as happy as an itinerant mortal can be in this world of belated railway trains, steamboat explosions and collisions, and runaway stage-horses. In the smaller cities and towns we would sometimes, by particular request, end up the evening with a ball. While we were washing the burnt cork from our faces, 
the ushers would remove the seats and for a certain fee those ladies and gentlemen who delighted in the dance were readmitted to the hall then the four adults of the troupe attired in their very best citizen's dress as they called it would discourse music for the dancers my musical incompetency was at these times a signal advantage to me for i was left free to go into society i danced a great deal and with considerable eclat on such occasions my salary which increased gradually with my progress in the profession was at this period squandered almost entirely upon my back i was under the impression that my importation of metropolitan cuts and fashions into those provincial places was something altogether killing my jewelry if i remember well was just simply astonishing for a boy of my age from these towns where we had dancing parties i always went away with love affairs on my hands the amount of gold rings which i exchanged with young ladies between the ages of eleven and thirteen years was to say the least extraordinary sunday in a small city is generally a heavy day with your minstrel he writes to his wife if he has any or if he has none he practices solos on the bass viol or some other instrument that ought never to be played solo or yawns or lounges about the common room of the company i used to pass these days i am sorry to say in replying to voluminous ill-spelt correspondence from young persons with whom i had danced a week or so back and if i happened to have a flame in the same town i would go to church with the very reprehensible motive of seeing her or walking home with her i ought to have known that this was highly improper conduct even if the simple appearance of a negro minstrel at church had not almost invariably produced great scandal to the congregation i am glad however to be able to add that my toilet and behavior in such places were always scrupulously careful i do not know whether it is quite seemly in me to tell of it but during the past winter i had occasion to lecture in a town which had once been the scene of one of these erotic exploits and there were sitting in a row on a front seat in the audience not only the quondam heroine and the gentleman who has for many years been her husband but her father and mother and worst of all that brother of hers who intercepted our letters and who had threatened profanely to punch my head now although our attachment had been of the most harmlessly juvenile kind the reader will imagine my embarrassment when i had the honor of an introduction to this whole family and when the past was talked over by them in the most ruthlessly philosophical manner at a certain county seat in michigan the booker troop had a remarkable bout with a moral editor there must be many persons in that county especially of the legal fraternity who yet remember at least the catastrophe of the strange affair this is the way it happened as nearly as i can recall it there were two weekly papers published in that town at the time our agent had given our advertisement to one of these papers and the other without authority had copied it when the bills were brought to be paid that of the paper which had printed our advertisement without warrant was about three times as much as the regular price or as the other paper had charged to mr booker's remonstrance it was answered that the exorbitant bill must be paid that shows were immoral things anyway and that it was the purpose of that particular weekly newspaper to put them down this was the moral editor who spoke 
Mr. Booker offered him the same amount that the other paper had charged, and bluntly refused to give a cent more. The moral editor would not take a cent less than his first charges, and in default of immediate payment would get out an attachment. Now, the constable, in common with most of the citizens, sympathized with Mr. Booker. In fact, the red-nose and generally dissipated air of the moral editor made decidedly against the honesty of his intentions as a missionary of reform. And thus it happened, by some intentional delay in the making out of the papers, that the constable and the creditor arrived at the station to attach our baggage just at the time when it was all carefully stowed away in the baggage-car, and when the train was moving off with us on board. The editor, in great rage, notwithstanding his mission as moral censor, indulged in a great deal of profanity by way of making it the better understood that he would follow us to the ends of the earth as soon as he could get the proper warrant made out. Our next stopping-place was a brisk little town which chanced to be in the same county. We exhibited there and slipped away to our next point on a midnight train, leaving Mr. Booker behind to encounter the attachment, which, from private advices, we were led to expect the following morning. The officer accosted Mr. Booker as he was getting on the train, and asked him if an old weather-beaten valise which he carried in his hand was his. It was, and that was all the baggage he had with him, the rest having gone on, of course, with us, by the night train. With imposing formality the old weather-beaten valise was attached. The key was also given up. I do not know whether to the officer or to a lawyer who had come up from the county seat to advise us in the matter. The lawyer then and there, in the presence of the officer and of the interested spectators, was entrusted formally with the case, and Mr. Booker joining us in a few hours thereafter, we proceeded unmolested on our travels. The justice and the counsel on both sides seemed to have entered into the affair with the design of getting all the sport they could out of it. On the day of the trial the courtroom was thronged. In the absence of witnesses for the defense, and I suppose also by collusion, the case went against the Booker troop. The editor, who was of course present, was in great glee. At this stage of the proceedings it has been related, I know not how truly, the justice arose, and in the most solemn manner spoke of the case as peculiarly aggressive on the part of a company of itinerant showmen, and, inasmuch as their fellow-citizen had taken it upon himself, single-handed, to drive this growing evil out of the land, therefore the magistrate ordered, although it was a little informal, that the constable, without further delay, which had in the tardy course of justice been too long already, should in the presence of that court open the valise and proceed to the sale of its contents. The face of the moral editor is reported to have beamed more brightly than ever at this stage of his triumph. With much pomp and circumstance the key was produced, and the ragged valise brought forward and opened. As nearly as I can remember, from having been present at the packing, and from an account of the affair sent to us afterward, the constable then began with grave deliberation to draw forth from that discouraged old portmanteau the following articles. To wit, one large brick, one quart of beans, one silk hat 
without rim or lining three pounds potatoes which latter had sprouted in the delays of justice one old boot one letter of congratulations to the moral editor which was read in open court and worst of all one life-size woodcut representation of mr booker himself with an old valise in one hand and a superannuated umbrella in the other as he was wont to appear in his wonderful plantation act of the smoke-house reel during the slow exposure of each of these articles one after the other there was some attempt to keep order in the court but by the time the last one was reached even the attempt was abandoned the scene became uproarious and the court was adjourned the moral editor never heard the last of it he was forced to sell out his reformatory newspaper and leave the town we were on our way east from chicago exhibiting at the towns along the line of the michigan central railroad when ephraim came to us Ephraim was one of the most comical specimens of the negro species. We were playing at Marshall, Michigan, when he introduced himself to our notice by bringing water into the dressing-room, blacking our boots, and in other ways making himself useful. He had the blackest face, largest mouth, and whitest teeth imaginable. He said there was nothing in the world which he would like so well as to travel with a show. What could he do? Why, he could fetch water, black our boots, and take care of our baggage. We assured him that we could not afford to have a servant travel with us. Ephraim rejoined that he did not want any pay, he just wanted to go with the show. We told him it was simply impossible, and Ephraim went away, as we thought, discouraged. The next morning, as we were getting into the railway car, whom should we discover there before us but Ephraim? with his baggage under his arm, a glazed traveling-bag of so attenuated an appearance that it could not possibly have had anything in it but its lining. To the question as to whither he was bound, he replied, "'Why, bless you, I was going with the show!' Again he was told that it could not be, and made to get out of the car. This occurrence gave Mr. Lynch the theme for a long series of stories about people he had met who were what he called show-struck, and with these narratives our time was beguiled till we reached the town at which we were to perform that night. As we walked out toward the baggage-car, what was our surprise to see Ephraim there, picking out and piling up our trunks, and bestowing sundry loud and expressive epithets upon the baggage-master who had let a property-box fall upon the platform. I think we laughed louder now than we had at any of Mr. Lynch's stories, Ephraim deigned not to notice us or our mirth, but, having picked out the baggage that went to the hall where we were to exhibit, he called a dray and rode away with it. He made himself of great use during our stay in that place, in return for which his slight hotel expenses were paid, but he was told positively that he could go no farther. We knew that he had no money, yet did not dare to give him any, lest he should be enabled to follow us to the next town. So when we came to go away, we expressed our regrets to the ingenious darky, and once more bade him good-bye. He disappeared in the crowd, and the train moved off. When we arrived at the next town, however, there again was Ephraim, at the baggage-car, giving his stentorian commands about our trunks and properties, 
and taking not the least notice of the surprise depicted on our faces the discharge and mysterious reappearance of ephraim occurred in about the same manner at every town along the road until we reached detroit we never could find out how he got from place to place on the cars but where our baggage was there was ephraim also we had to succumb his persistency and faithfulness and perfect good nature carried the point and he became a regular attache of the booker troop the story of the fights and beatings that poor ephraim sustained in his jealous care of our luggage would alone make a long chapter he was always at fisticuffs with the irish porters of the hotels on one occasion when remonstrated with for his excessive pugnacity ephraim explained himself in this way for one slam of a trunk i generally speaks to a man for two slams i calls him a thief and when it comes to three slams then there's going to be somebody knocked down now you heard me on our arrival at the hotel in detroit we observed that the porter was an irishman and were really surprised that he and ephraim did not quarrel in handling the baggage an anomaly which was satisfactorily explained to us afterward by the fact that the porter had lately come to this country and was moreover only about half-witted now ephraim was in the habit of taking his meals in the kitchens and of sleeping in whatever attic was assigned him on our first night in detroit he had been sent into the servants chamber somewhere in the topmost part of the hotel ephraim ascended disrobed himself and with his usual recklessness got into the first of the many beds he saw in the large room at twelve o'clock when his watch was over the irish porter also proceeded to the same apartment with the purpose of retiring opening the door he discovered by the dim gaslight something dark on the pillow of his own bed this brought all his old-world superstition into play in a moment going as much nearer as he dared he saw that it was a black head and believing firmly that the devil was black he was sure that the devil was in his bed the affrighted porter gave an unearthly yelp at which ephraim started up in terror whereupon the irishman seized one of the negro's boots from the floor by the foot of the bed and fell to beating the supposed devil over the head with all his might the attack was so sudden that ephraim never thought of defense but springing to his feet fled precipitately down the six flights of stairs out into the middle of the street crying watch watch at the top of his voice here a policeman came along and took poor ephraim off to the station-house just as he was and in spite of all his protestations of innocence the next morning mr booker carried his clothes to the unfortunate negro and brought him back to the hotel end of chapter four the trials and triumphs of the booker troop